to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. This episode is the second of our two-part interview with Norris Henderson, best known as founder and executive director of Voice of the Experienced and Voters Organized to Educate. We continue our conversation on his decades of organizing for criminal justice reform, the patience and persistence required for progressive change, and the formula being used by his organizations to win big victories in our state. If you missed our previous episode, animated by Justice Number 1 with Norris Henderson, please give it a listen and then come back to this episode as we pick up where we left off with a deeper dive on the Unanimous Jury Coalition's campaign to change the Louisiana Constitution. My joy is not being a witness, but being a participant, you know, and that's the joy. So when I tell the story, it's kind of like from the first person. It's like, I was there, I was in the middle of that. You know, I wasn't on the sideline watching, you know? And so it's just good to uh, see, and every time I see somebody that was really in the throes of looking at that yes on two uh, 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 placard with everybody's signatures on and looking at people's signatures like, man, that was a, and you know, that window of opportunity we had, that was a short window that we worked in. And that just demonstrated the commitment that uh, people had to make this happen. You know, to have a piece of legislation, first to get the legislation, which was totally out of our hands, to get the legislation, and between June and November uh, to make it happen. Uh, it's a miracle in and of itself, you know? We did a podcast with J.P. Morrell where he went through the whole process mm-hmm. of passing that in the legislature even to get it on the ballot so that was that that was its own wild story that's right that's right that's right i mean and people uh in these states where they do ballot initiatives it's not just go get it you just kind of like just go to work and uh when people talk about it's like like the first like in 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 florida they had to gather over seven hundred thousand signatures to get it on the ballot wow you know and so Although that was work, uh, it was the people's will to put it on the ballot. Here, we, we was like at the, the mercy of the legislature and two thirds of each body, then two thirds of the whole body, which is, that don't happen every day in Louisiana, you know, especially for a constitutional amendment of uh, that nature. And I, I think, the, and to be honest, I don't think people believe we was gonna get it done. I think people like, oh, we didn't give y'all an opportunity. When it failed, it's going to be like, oh, we tried. We gave y'all an opportunity. Y'all weren't able to make it happen. Now go away. And I think we are uh, becoming that thorn in their side right now because we're not going away. And we're showing up in every iteration that you can through the legislation and the, the courts and everywhere. And now the task force is really uh calling people to account you know this is that reckoning that we have to have uh within this state to make this thing right you know but uh 
Yeah, it's been good. It's been a, this has been a good journey that uh, we've been on. You know, I don't know what the final destination is, but uh, the journey has been really, uh, really, really exciting. So there is a connection between some of those Jim Crow voting restrictions and Jim Crow jury laws where in there, not only denying people their freedom, they're denying their in- the ability to engage in the process. Can you tell me what passing the unanimous jury amendment really has done for folks? I, I, I think it is the biggest, especially for Louisiana. It's going to be the thing that undermines mass incarceration in Louisiana. Because first of all, now you need 12 people. And when people fully understand now the power that's invested in them, I mean, when this happened, during the, during the 1800s, 1890s, there were over 100,000 African-American registered voters. The minute they changed the constitution, that literally dwindled down to like 10,000 people. So you have disenfranchised people for over 100 years. And for, so people have been removed from the franchise, like don't see a vested interest in it. And so I think with getting that done, it empowers those other people and it makes everybody please fair. Coupled with that fact that this last legislative session, we have restored the right to serve on the jury to formerly incarcerated people. And so who more understands that machinery than somebody who has been a part of it? And so I, I tell folks all the time, I know more about the elements of a crime than probably any John Cruz citizen that you're sitting in the jury panel. And so a lot of these things are determined off emotion and not off of fact. You know, there's a, a Latin phrase um, that is from the facts come to law, not the other way around, you know? And when people are hearing these things, that's why you see the innocent projects are able to exist now, primarily because people go to prison, not because of facts because uh, they emotionalize these cases, they highly charge and people want to get done with them, look up again, bam, you know, somebody's going to prison, 10 years later, here they come back again because somebody didn't do what they've done right. But no, to me, the non-unanimous is going to be the biggest game changer uh, in our criminal justice system. Bar none, bar none. Uh, because, the, you know, it's like, being in a, a hundred yard dash and you spotting somebody 80 yards, you ain't gonna never catch them. You know, you ain't gonna never catch them. They got a head start. And so going into a, a jury and explaining to jurors that I don't need all of y'all agree. I just need 10 of y'all agree. And that's gonna be sufficient enough. Well, just like the lady said at the hearing line, well, when they got the 10, I became insignificant. So you actually deprived that person of being a part of the process. And so it, 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 it is a double-edged sword. You not only victimized the person who was on trial, but you victimized the person who was on the jury because you nullified their voice. You didn't give them a voice in the process. And the striking thing about it wasn't the two states in this country that allowed that to happen, Louisiana and Oregon, and as we speak, Oregon is in the process now of changing theirs as we speak. I mean, they've kind of like accelerated their pace 
and changing when we're still holding on for dear life. You know, it's like we just don't want to change and want to make every excuse in the world as to why, you know. And uh, the easiest fix is that acknowledge what happened, uh, acknowledge the way it came to roots of it, where it came from. And from that, uh, we move on, you know, we just move on from that, you know. What's the justice and truth roadmap? The justice and truth roadmap is actually our proposal of asking to look at these 1,500 folks that's in prison and create a mechanism for them to be treated fairly. To one, give them an option of a new trial or do like uh, the local DA has done is give these folks an opportunity to get out of prison. I mean, how can you, you know, like you say, uh, an unjust law is like no law at all. So how can we have on one side saying Evangelist Ramos, who had a non-unanimous jury that the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional, is like, that's unconstitutional for Mr. Ramos. And you have to address this accordingly. But for Mr. Smith over here, I'm sorry because you wasn't in a timely window. That, that's just not equal protection of the law. That is not the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection. That is not equal protection. And so until we reconcile with that, that's going to be an ugly stain on us about what happened. And I think this state needs to acknowledge that until these remnants, matter of fact, Professor, I'm trying to take the professor's name, the, the, the professor who wrote Jim Crow's Last Stand. That, that, that is the certain. This was supposed to be Jim Crow's last time, that non-unanimous jury. And then, but as long as somebody is sitting in prison because of this non-unanimous jury, it still exists. And so the justice and truth uh, a roadmap is making those folks whole. It's making those folks whole. And I know people will say, well, what about the... The, 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 the survivors or the crime survivors of these people, it's like, well, the system didn't pack them with neither side. The, fifth, the system did you a disservice by not packing fair with these individuals. Had they had 12 people, this would be a closed case. We wouldn't even be revisiting this conversation. But because they didn't pack fair, uh, we have to start from scratch. And given the opportunity of what it looks like, what starting uh, from scratch look like is gathering the evidence up. Uh, some of these cases gonna, you know, gonna sit on his own, you know, every tub sits on his own bottom. Some of these folks, if they decide to go back to trial, some of them may get reconvicted again based upon the facts, based upon the evidence that exists. Uh, some of them won't. Like the, the case I mentioned about uh, Mr. Simmons uh, earlier is that all those facts existed and they still existed 44 years later. The difference is that somebody agreed now that this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do it. And so that judge actually uh, granted a new trial. And the minute the judge granted a new trial, the district attorney stood up and said, I'm notified the court that we're not going to retry this case because it's going to be difficult. And he turned and turned to the victims and said, 
told the victims that this is going to be a very difficult case to prosecute. You know, so I'm letting y'all know we're not going to try to prosecute this case. Because he realized going forward, now needing a unanimous jury, the jury pool is going to be totally different. The jury pool is predominantly white uh, the first time around. The jury pool is going to be predominantly different. Uh, people are going to see these stories in a different way. And uh, they stand running the risk of losing outright and costing the states uh, 44 years in damages. And so he took the safest way out, the, the fiscal way out of saying, I'm going to just dismiss this case and just not promise it and leave it at that. You know, it's kind of like win-win for both sides. One guy gets it free of the state, you know, uh, resolved. So I think that our truth and justice uh, roadmap is just that it is a way, a vehicle for the state to save face uh, in this debacle, you know? I mean, to be honest, you would have thought that the minute the folks in this state voted to change it was a signal that we need to turn the cone. But a year later, the United States Supreme Court said, oh yeah, 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 no, this is often, no, this is wrong. And that moment, the state should have then, because everybody had been identified by then, the state should have been there, roll call, calling everybody in and saying, hey, what's your pleasure? You know, we, you know, we can start from scratch again, or we can call, call it a day. And so we're offering up this alternative for the state to take advantage of and move forward. Because eventually, it's not going to stop until the dust is settled. And so if the state Supreme Court come back and say, yeah, it's to be applied retroactively, now you've wasted four years of resolving these issues. You know, and so it's like, you know, like I told the, the prosecutor, like, you know, like Dr. King said, wait almost means never. So you're just asking people to wait. And you're just kind of like relying on the wait, hoping that you keep winning because even if the state Supreme Court said no, that case is going back up to the United States Supreme Court because now it's going to be on the right track. And once they get back up there, they've already said, hey, we're not going to do it this time. But if the next case comes, well, we probably will. And so why you say prolonging it? Uh, because all you're doing is, you know, getting kind of like deeper and deeper in the quicksand. You know, and so by the time it straightens itself out, you're gonna be so far down in the hole, nobody gonna to wanna to negotiate with you at all. And I just wanna make sure I heard you right. There's still 1,500 people in prison today from non-unanimous juries. And, and, and it may be that those are the ones who have been identified. Okay. It may okay. be some other folks who just can't, can't find the documentation. Because one of the things was that they don't keep the when they give the verdict slip to the judge and the judge reads it out, they destroy it after that. The only way you would know if your lawyer decide to poll the jury, say, Yeah, I want the jury polled. And then you ask the question, then it's being recorded then. But in most cases, once they give that jury slip to the judge and the judge say, Well, we have a legal verdict, well, what does that mean? A legal verdict can be 10. A legal verdict can be 11. It don't necessarily say it's all 12. Okay. And so, okay. so the legal verdict can be legal, but illegal at the very same time. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
Well, Norris, you've become known for your ability to fundraise. Did that start with unanimous juries? Was that the beginning of that skill no, set? No, no. It that, came before then? It was before that. The, uh, and I tell people all the time, it's just putting in the work. When you put in the work, the, the, the resources will find you. And I tell people all the time is that people don't fund technically organization. People fund people. People believe in you and they believe in the work that you're doing. And they're willing, and they look at your track record. You know, they look at your track record. It's like, yeah, you've been a part of some dynamic things and I want to be a part of it. I want to support uh, the work that you do. And uh, so, yeah, I think what, what happened with the nine unanimous, I think the nine unanimous just exposed what we were doing, our ability to fundraise. I think that's what it did. It, it exposed our ability to fundraise in that short window. And I think that, that, I think that became the story, not so much the ability to fundraise, but the fundraise in that short window and the magnitude of resources we were able to uh, pull in in that short window. That, so that became, that, that's, that's what the legend became. It's like, look what they've done. I'm like, oh, you know? I mean, because it was that, that the spotlight was on that. But then like with the last election cycle too, the spotlight shifted again back to our ability to get resources because it became a focal point in the campaign when it shouldn't have been. You know, the campaign should have been about the talent that you have as opposed to the talent this other person have, not finding fault about complaining about dark money. And I like, I was telling people all the time, it wasn't so dark when they was getting it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The only reason it became dark now is because they can't get it. You know, that's the only difference, you know? Well, and I think it's important for us to be able to get contributions from outside of our state because we're such a poor state. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know how we make progress or reforms in Louisiana unless if, we're building those relationships across the country. That's right. If, if, if we had to rely on resources internally, especially for the type of work that we're doing, CJ work, this criminal justice work, it probably wouldn't happen. It probably would never happen because it's not enough philanthropy inside of our state to subsidize the work that needs to be done. Uh, just being real. I mean, we've been blessed the last couple of years with the likes of uh, C.G. Harmon and Press and them, folks who kind of like convince other people to kind of like put some money behind these causes, but they are few and far in between, you know, especially with the big donors, you know, folks who can actually, you know, fund the campaign, especially a campaign like that uh, on, on, on short notice too. Uh, so no, that's, 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 that's the plus being access and being again, blessed to have an access to folks like that, folks who are willing to pick up their phone, listen at uh, what you have to say about what you're trying to do and kind of like believe in uh, where you're at. Because e even, in, even in the beginning with the odds being from the first polling that was done that the odds being 50-50, people believed in us enough that uh, all we need was 50.1. So we was almost there just with the 50-50. That's what people kept saying. Well, 
Why is 50 50? But we don't need with 50.1. We like a whole bunch of people we need to convince, although we convinced a whole bunch of more people. But I think that was uh, the biggest thing. And I think it became, I, I think that campaign, the fundraising became the story more so than the work itself. The work changing that non unanimous thing was the work. But the fundraising kind of like overshadowed because it happened in a short window. And I think the dollar amount really shook some people in the sense that we were able to bring in those kind of resources in that, uh, in that window, you know? Which were largely put into organizing work that's it. across that's the it. state. That, that's it, that's it. That, and I think the biggest thing with that was I, I don't know. I mean, we must have had a couple hundred people uh, for sure on the ground all across this state. And that don't happen in campaigns. You know, people right. don't really fund organizing, but now they do, you know, and uh, we are being, no, honestly, we're being lifted up as a model in a sense how we run these campaigns. Same thing with the campaign in Florida, the Yes on. Uh, the Amendment 4 in Florida. And what folks don't know about what happened there, we mobilized a thousand people from across this country to Florida, formerly incarcerated people to Florida to work in their campaign. And we had uh, a day of action. And on that day of action, we actually touched 82,000 people on that day of action through predictive dollar, hustle, uh, regular phone banking and door knocking. And uh, it was striking to folks. I mean, it was in, it inspired the folks, the Floridians inspired them that a thousand people would come in on their own dime to help y'all. You know, not their own dime, their own dime because folks subsidize it, but in order to help and play a part of it. And so people saw the powers that be the benefit of what organizing looks like. And it took them back to the labor movement in the sense of how the labor movement was built. It was built on organizing. And they see this resurgence of that kind of organizing happening in marginalized communities all over this country. And they want to be a part of it, you know? They want to be a part of it. And you said the unanimous juries was, we had people all across the state was vote already all across the state as well, or did you expand during that campaign? No, we, we, we was all across the state already. What it did was just brought in more people because then our folks, you know, it's kind of like our relationship with our folks is unique because our folks actually have either directly impacted or they vicariously impacted. And those numbers are exponential. And I always give the example of Angola. Angola has 6,000 people in it. Everybody there can have 10 people on their visiting list. So you do the aggregate, you're talking about 60,000 people. That's a, a contact part. But those same people can have 20, 000, 20 people on their phone list who they can call. So now you look at 10, 10, 10 on the phone list, 20 on, 20 on the phone list, 10 on the business list, you're talking about at least 100,000 people 
And although some of those lists are going to be cross-pollinated, even if you cleaned it up, you're talking about roughly, you can touch 100,000 people just from one institution. Well, we got 40,000 people in this state locked up. So you look at those numbers exponentially, it's more of us than it is of them. And so it's just about how do we educate those people and give them roles to play. And uh, once they're given roles, that's it. People kind of like latch on to the role they're playing and then it becomes a different thing, you know? Where do you have offices right now? We have office in the New Orleans, is the, the, the main office. We have an office in Baton Rouge and we have an office in Lafayette. We had an office in Shreveport, but we couldn't get the kind of traction that we wanted. So we just closed the office. We'd like a, on a hiatus, we ain't shut down for that. We're on a hiatus until we find the right person uh, from that area to kind of like man that balance ship. But we're looking to expand in northeastern uh, Louisiana, up in the Monroe area, and actually in Alexandria. That way we'd have the seven parts of this state covered. And so that's what we're looking at right now. So our, our goal for 22-23 is to really solidify Baton Rouge and Lafayette to be as you know, targeted somebody in Shreveport and then move to Alexandria and uh, to Monroe. And that way we're kind of like the major hubs inside the state uh, we'd be covering. Cause that's what a lot of our work is at too. And one of the things we look to do, we want always try to have a hub in these prison communities, you know, while our folks are actually, uh, we look at it the most way too, New Orleans is the biggest feeder into the, the system. And so we target here as y'all the biggest feeder. The next biggest feeder is JP, which is Arlene Jefferson, Arlene Jefferson, St. Bernard. So we kind of like combine those three parishes. But the next biggest feeder is Baton Rouge, Lafayette, and Shreveport. And so we know by carefully we have people, family members in those areas and so we want to build there where we have people who can actually help keep the organization uh, afloat uh, from being uh, having family members involved. But yeah, we're looking to expand uh, completely across the state in those major hubs and pulling everybody within those radiuses. Because like the Lafayette, we have the Lafayette. We don't really trip off of Lake Charles because y'all like neighbors. And so that's kind of like the Lafayette, Lake Charles, our sulfur area where we kind of like reach out to folks. But we really uh, look to see where our base of people inside, where they come from. And that, that's kind of like a built-in hub. And so it's easier for us to go in places like that and organize as opposed to going and set up shop uh, in St. Tammany. You know what I mean? Uh, given the demographic. So yeah, we look at those places and then we figure it out from there. It's kind of like, we kind of like work like the backwards calendar, you know, we know where we're going, we need to figure out what we're going, how we're going, how we're going to get there. And that's how we figure it out. Figure out who is from these parishes inside, organize them internally, and then have them send us their contact information for their families and friends we send a survey to them and say, hey, look, here's this list. Send us those people that's on your phone list and your visiting list. 
and we'll take it from there. We just need you to do the transfer of the relationship and we'll take it from there. And we've been kind of successful with that transfer relationship of folks, even more so now because we've been getting a lot of stuff done. Folks are actually seeing the, the, the fruits of the labor. And so it's easier now that every day we get mail from folks inside saying, hey, look, here's my mom's number, my sister, my brother, contact these folks, they're willing to help. And we go and organize those folks uh, to kind of start having house parties and meeting in churches or meeting wherever uh, folks allow us to meet and trying to build those coalitions with what the kind of like whoever exists there, like NAACP, ACLU, uh, whomever exists in those communities, go and seek them out and kind of like showing their intersecting line. Like we see now popping up everywhere, together New Orleans, together Baton Rouge, together Louis. Well, we are part of all those networks and it's striking now that everybody is realizing the intersecting lines that criminal justice play and everything else that they do. You don't have money for this is because it's being spent over here. And if you start kind of like holding the reins over here, you might get afford some of the other things that you want to do. And so, yeah, all these together organizations now are starting to realize that we got to have somebody at the table with us who can explain this, this other apparatus that's been gobbling us up for years, you know? And so we, we, we kind of like, like I said again, we hopefully uh, 24, uh, this time in 24, no later than the, in a 24 to hopefully be set up at least uh, re-open uh, the, the, the shop in Shreveport and either have done something in Alexandria or either Monroe. Another thing we look at too, who we have in the legislature from those areas that's helping. And like we got Katrina Jackson up in Monroe. So we're thinking about maybe going there first uh, before we go to Alexandria because at least we have an anchor who won can carry some of the legislation that we need done. And at the same time, have a constituency base of our folks that's pushing too about what they want. So we've been trying to game plan around uh, what this stuff looks like. I'm glad you mentioned Together Louisiana and some of those other groups that you mentioned along the way, because it was, in my mind, the coalition from the unanimous jury's amendment that got back together and then had the addition of those kind of groups for the governor's reelection in 2019. Yeah, yeah. I really saw that organizing, particularly in that runoff, as what put him over the right. over the finish line. I've written about that, I think, as you know. But mm -hmm. from your perspective, what was the great urgency of reelecting the governor? Oh, the urgency around reelecting the governor. Well, we, we're just going to see everything go to hell in the handbasket. I mean, we we. <laughs> 45, 45 was the urgency around that. That was the urgency around that. I mean, everybody was drinking that Kool-Aid and was like, oh no, we could not, not right now. Maybe four years from now, we make and deal with some of that stuff, but not right now. So that was the urgency. And I think the, the advantage we had was it didn't take much to put the band back together, you know, because we had just come off of that campaign and this thing is just like, hey, we already knew who had skills to do what. So it was easy to put the band back together to put the show back on the road, you know? And I know that uh, the administration is very appreciative because if we had to build out the campaign, 
the way we had to do, but I don't think we have been able to do it. I think because we were able to hit the ground running, uh, made all the difference in the world. We we made up a lot of ground. We made up a lot of ground, you know? Well, yeah. I did want to ask you a popular question right now, because we do have a lot of rising crime rates across the country and particularly in Louisiana, that's a big topic of conversation. Do you have any concern that there'll be a backlash against criminal justice reform due to that? I, I think in the early stages, when people are uh, just grabbing for answers, not trying to really think this thing out, uh, yeah, you're probably going to see, no, 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 because even like right now, I had a conversation with a business person last week, and the first thing he said, the business community was blaming them for supporting criminal justice stuff. Like, look, all these people y'all fought, and it was like, no, no, no. These are not the folks that we advocated that needed help. This is uh, these traumatized kids from Katrina who are of age now, and there's nothing for them to do. There's no resources in our community to help subsidize them. So we stop looking at the, the, the end result and looking at what's causing this to happen. You know, then I think we'll get it. We start like right now, it's like, oh, we need 600 more police. Okay, what's the cost of 600 more police? It would be cheaper to take that money and put it into these communities and make people whole, you know, to give people, and it was something I read in, I think it was the Tribune. The person posed the question rhetorically about to the people who screaming out about crime. It's like, I'm wondering how did you vote about affordable housing? How did you vote about increasing the minimum wage? Because if you voted no on both of those, you're complicit in why we're having crime. Those two things would have been the gateway for folks to come up out of the situations that they're in. And so I'm just hopeful that we can slow this train right now that's coming down this track and get people to say, wait a minute, this is not just happening in New Orleans. This is happening across this country. The symptoms is caused by one, the pandemic. The pandemic pushed thousands of people out of the workforce. I was in and I thought I would never see this in my life. I was in New York last year and places of business that was there. And I was looking at these boarded up places for, for sale, for lease. And I was like, in New York, really? But places just that was there, it's like the, 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 the Yatsby saying, it ain't there no more, you know? Well, they need to make one for New York. And now I'm talking about in Times Square. They can make one, it ain't there no more. And that is the contributor to how this thing is starting to happen, is that there's not enough resources going around. At the, the height of the pandemic, when people started hoarding uh, Lysol, hoarding tissue paper, you know? And it's like those kind of things, when people go to the store, there's not no bread on the shelf for me to buy. It's like, I'm going to eat. We just need to figure out whose bread is going to be. Uh, put it a different way, the, the shelf is stocked with bread, but I don't have no money. I'm going to eat, and I just need to, y'all need to figure out whose money I'm going to be spending to buy the bread. And I think they need to kind of like just slow down for a minute, stop pointing fingers at each other. If it wasn't for you, 
and figure this thing out that we need to reallocate resources. And I think one of the tragic things about over the, what I call the George Floyd summer was the hashtag about defunding police. And I think we're in a space right now where people need to really explain what that means. Defunding the police don't mean we don't need police. It don't mean that. Defunding police meaning, let me get some of those dollars that y'all over budgeted and put somewhere else that can help y'all. Some of that money we give to you, y'all don't need. We could give it to mental health people to deal with folks who deal with mental health crisis. People are hungry right now. This surplus budget you got, let me take some of that money and help some people get a house. So you won't have to be showing up at these domestic situations. I mean, these domestic things are coming because people are pinned into these still spaces. Somebody, you know, lost their job. Now we're going to be homeless on the street. And all that creates this tension and this stress because it's not in, you know, like you said, in the hood, it's not raining enough in the hood. It's not, the, the money's not there. And I'm going to close it with this. It's like the story I was sharing with this business person. It's like the, the lion in the jungle. When the lion go down to the water hole, there's, you know, I mean, a pickle of water buffalo all over the place. So he don't have to worry about being hungry. You know, the water buffalo going to be there. But the minute he go down to that water hole and the water buffalo is gone, do you think the lion is going to sit there? No, the lion is going to follow the water buffalo. The water buffalo now is the French Quarter, Magazine Street, Patania Street, places you never saw the lion because it was food at the water hole. He didn't have to go nowhere else. But when all the food is removed from the water hole, the line is going to find the food, and that's what's happening. I mean, can you see this stuff? This stuff is crazy. That stuff that's been happening at Costco and broad daylight. You know, that, that, that's just senseless stuff. But we have to deal with the symptoms of that. What is causing this to happen? Causing folks to kind of like just put themselves in harm's way. You're going to like the little kids, you know, you, you get caught for that. Now you're kind of like connected to something else. How callous can you be at 16, 17, 18 years old? You know, something else is going on there. And we need to try to figure out what that something else is, you know? And I think until we actually sit down, the powers that be, all these different entities, sit down together and figure it out, is this isn't going to go away no time soon. We were doing well before the pandemic set in. So I think that should be the starting point. How we were doing before the pandemic. And I tell people all the time, all across this country, I would never thought that our police department would have come in line with the consent decree before our jail did. The police department, like 1,500 moving parts, but they almost completed the, the, the mandate from the consent decree. And so to be having the problems they're having now, it's not because they weren't doing a good job. It's because things that's far beyond their control. They cannot, those external things, they can't stop crime. They don't know when crime is going to happen. I mean, you know, these domestic disputes, that's in somebody's house. The police is not there looking to see. And so when it happens, they say, oh, the police couldn't stop. Police couldn't stop that. That was going to happen. Now the police can help us resolve what has happened. 
and try to find the person who's responsible for it. And then the system will deal with that accordingly. But we have to stop blaming the police and saying, oh, the police ain't doing their job. What, what you want them to do? What you want them to do? You know, you want them sitting on, they can't sit on everybody's step. Because if, if, if they're sitting on this step here and somebody who had bad intentions to do something, gonna look up and say, oh, the police is over there. We're going over here. And then you're gonna, you know the perfect example of that? Ceasefire. Remember when ceasefire first got started? For 200 and something days, while they were in Central City, there never was any gun violence. And then all of a sudden they said, well, we need to send ceasefire somewhere else. And when you kind of like, kind of like, just kind of like spread them too thin, then everything starts popping up everywhere, Central City included. And that's what we're doing with the police now. We're kind of like spreading them too thin. Let them people do what they're trained to do. They respond to things. They don't prevent anything from happening. You know, same thing with cameras. Cameras just going to say, smile, young candy camera. It ain't going to stop it from happening. We're just going to catch it because it happened. And I think if we kind of like put those things in the real perspective and kind of like just breathe for a minute because this too will pass. But if we kind of like start, this is how we got into this mass incarceration thing, by this very same thing, selling fear, fear sales. You know, that every time you turn on the television, this is that I, I, I kind of like wean my way away from the news. You know, at nighttime, I'm on the Western Channel. I'm watching reruns of Gunsmoke and Wagon Train and Cheyenne and stuff like that. You know, stuff that's fine, okay? I know that's make-believe stuff. But we have to wean ourselves away from and even thinking, you know, that these other things, how complicit we are in these things. You know, for all the people who want to take the streets about crime, it goes back to that article I read, how did you vote about affordable housing? How did you vote about raising the minimum wage? How did you vote about uh, Airbnbs? All this stuff plays a part in this stuff, you know? Uh, so until we are willing to holistically look at this thing, uh, this band-aid, it ain't gonna cut it, it ain't gonna cut it. Well, Norris, what's your next big project? Do you know? They're just dropping our lap, to be honest with you. I okay. mean, one thing is kind of like finish off all the stuff we're doing, making sure these things that we have kind of like these policies that we have changed actually come to fruition. Uh, we've been doing some redistricting work right now, trying to really educate folks about what this looks like, what the importance of it is. And although we are kind of behind the gun, uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is changing our city charter, you know, because our city charter just requires to have five council districts, whereas like right now, uh, those districts require 70,000 people in them. Some of those districts have like overpopulation about 13,000 people. And so that means we can afford to have like uh, District C. This District C is under by, I think, almost 20,000 people. Well, C could be big enough to, we broke those districts down, split them in half to like 30, 35,000 people. We can create at least 11 to 13 city council district. People be closer to power, you know, than these folks who run these neighborhood organizations 
won't have to be trying to raise two, three hundred thousand dollars to run for a job that pays eighty. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. it's kind of like they would have people who are part of communities pushing for the change that they want to see inside the community. So the, the biggest thing right now is for me and our organization is one looking at that. Uh, one of the things I, I we did during the last election cycle with all the city council people we interviewed was asking them, where y'all at? Where y'all staying on this? Because I don't believe one person can service 70 plus thousand people. Our councilmatic districts are larger than our legislative districts. That doesn't make no sense. So right. now I understand why people go to the legislature and they leave because it's like, uh, one, there's not enough pay. Two, it's like it's not as impactful as you can be on the city council. So I always use the east. The east runs from the river to the lake on the other side of the canal. So on the river, we got all the rich Democrats. On the lake, we got all the rich Republicans and everybody in between. Same thing with District 8. River to the lake, Parish line, and everybody in between. How can you service those diverse? You can't. To be honest, you really can't, you know? And so unless we kind of like break this thing down, and the only way you can break it down is change the city charter, because if we had uh, a million people in this city, our charter requires us to have 200,000 people in each district. Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. So that's the, that's the thing we're working on right now. Okay. That's the, the, the I'm game planning for. And how would people plug into your work? Oh, our website. You just go to our website, uh, www.vote-nola.org. And uh, from that link, you can actually link into our sister organization if you want to engage in Voters Organized. Uh, uh, want to get you know acclimated about what we do on that side i'll put the links to your websites in the episode notes so it'll yeah. be an easy way for folks to connect to you um yeah. we're on the last three questions and i ask a different version of these every episode mm -hmm. norris what's the biggest hurdle against progress on criminal justice reform in louisiana uh people not realizing their impediments, you know, that some people who, I, I think they don't want to push far enough. You know, sometimes I think people just want to, to don't want to ruffle feathers, don't want to push that envelope. And I think one of the things, and the perfect example is JP. Nobody wanted to carry that piece of legislation. That was a hard piece of legislation. But as it started progressing through, then the allies started showing up. But nobody wanted to be the person to do that heavy lifting. And that's what it is with a lot of things. And, and, and it's like the impediment to this is like, like right now, stuff is happening negatively in the community with crime. And so here you're trying to get something done. People are be like, nah, man, I don't think, man, we need to do this. Because again, once you start educating people about what the, 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 the sources of all of this discontent, then I think it becomes easier. You don't have to do it all one fell swoop. You can do it incrementally. Let's kind of like do it little piece at a time, see what the results are, do a little more, and then you keep on doing it. But you can't stop, because if you stop, all it's gonna do is bow the neck again. And when it, that, that pressure get in that cap, it's gonna pop off. And then you're gonna be trying to figure out how do we get to where we're at? But we saw it coming. 
And the thing is, you just got to kind of like start reducing it because now, you know, again, everybody across this, I mean, the, the folks in Together Bad Rouge, they're running a campaign now about ending life without parole in Louisiana because the lightning came on. Their light has come on. It's about, wait a minute, man. We're the only people in this country that's punished people this way. When is enough enough? You know, and, you know, granted, some people may be in prison for some, you know, very, very bad things, but at what point do we reconcile with that? You know, at some point, you know, people are reconciled with that and we have to give everybody this opportunity, whether or not they take advantage of it or not, we have to present the opportunity. And that's all we're asking for, creating opportunity for folks. Whether or not they succeed, you know, I mean, at that point it's on them, whether or not they do the necessary things to do that creates the, the opportunities for them. But yeah, that's the, the biggest hurdle is that people don't think it can get done. And that's one of the challenges with folks is that, oh man, people gonna do what they want to do. No, you have to believe that. It's to go back with the old adage, if you can conceive it, believe it, you can achieve it. And I think that's what it has to be. You have to get it, you have to see it though. You have to be able to see. If we went into everything is like, what would me? We would never start. So you have to go into it as like, you know, you can win. It's like, you know, I, 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 when, we, when you were talking about the fundraising piece of it, you know, I go into every one of those situations with believing I can sell milk to a cow, you know? And when, when and you know, and people's like, oh, so yeah, I believe I can sell milk to a cow. You just listen to me long enough, you know? And so we have to believe in these things that we're working on and actually, you know, our theory again is highlighting what the crisis is, shifting that frame, but also having a solution. You know, we can't rely on other people to have the solution for the problems that we have identified, you know, because if they had the solution, it probably would have been implemented already. They don't have one. So we can't just show up and say, hey, look, would you do such and such and such? Well, they don't have a clue. But here's the roadmap for you to do it. So the, the roadmap, our road, truth and justice roadmap, that's it. Here's the roadmap. You know, we highlight the crisis. It's not unanimous. We have shifted the frame, but here's the solution. We can't wait around on y'all's solution because it may y'all don't see it from the same uh, perspective. Y'all got blinders on. Y'all just seen it like this. Remove the blinders and you can see that, oh, there's other stuff exists outside of that that we can make happen. And what's our biggest opportunity for progress in criminal justice reform? Our biggest opportunity is kind of like steady, continue to educate people and keep them engaged. We can't use them in, in, in cycles. You know, we can't wait till these election cycles come up and then go and try to engage with folks. We have to keep people engaged year round about things that's not important to us, but that's important to them. And once we get to that point, when it becomes something important to us, or they'll be coming to us saying, hey, we want to help you because you helped us. It's like right now, there's this thing that I'm engaged in, this um, bio, bio zone, bio, bio district. And it don't impact where I live at, but it impacts where I work at. But it impacts the people who live in this area where people may be talking about uh, appropriating their, their homes and stuff like they did after Katrina. 
And so I'm like, no, I'm here to lend my voice because I'm going to teach y'all how to organize y'all. So if I don't have nothing to bring to the table, at least I got that skill I can help y'all with. And so it's like, I know showing up for those meetings and sharing with people the knowledge we have has already been a windfall for that community because now it's like, no, we need to have more meetings and we need to go and talk to our neighbors about what's going on and bringing people in to help. And so I think that's the biggest thing. That's how we overcome, you know, those, um, you know, that's kind of like SWAT, you know, what's our strengths, our weaknesses, the opportunities and the threats, you know? And so I'm just explaining to people how to identify those things, you know, like the redistricting piece. When we was talking about this ballot district, like the person who represents their mom in the legislature, the way they created the new New Orleans district, half the people in that room is no longer in that person's district. And I'm like, but you know what happened? Y'all wasn't at the table when that conversation was being had. Now y'all need to figure out what happens next because y'all gonna get somebody who's smack brand new, who don't understand y'all want needs and desires. At least the person you had understood that, but y'all didn't lean on that person enough to have that person stand up and say, nope, you can't draw the line that way. You have to draw the line a different way. And I think that's one of the things we feel really is holding all of those people accountable. And, uh, you know, like one of the guys uh, on the campaign, I just like to give people credit for when I pick up stuff and use it, uh, Kevin Griffin, one of his themes was uh, uh, accountability is not an attack. And I think we have to kind of start approach people and, and explain to them, hey, I'm just holding you, this is not an attack. I'm here to hold you accountable. You're not there to fulfill your want, needs, and desires. You're there to fulfill ours. Here's our wish list. Take it. If you don't move nowhere, fine, at least you try. But don't go there and then full speed us. It's, and I explained to those folks, redistricting should be us choosing who we want to represent us. It is turned into them deciding who they want to represent. You know, and if we lead them to their devices, um, it'll tell them what we're going to wind up. It's true. Norris, who's your favorite superhero? Ah, uh, my superhero was really is my grandmother. She's not with us, but my superhero is my grandmother who passed when I was like 13 years old. And it's just amazing when I look back at all the stuff that she instilled in me. And it's just amazing. I find myself doing something and be like, hey, where you get that from? And it always goes back to my grandmother, you know? And so that is my uh, superhero, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. lovely. That's lovely. Well, thank you again for joining me, Norris. It's truly an honor to have you conversing with me on Louisiana Lefty. So I really, really, really appreciate it. Glad to be here. You know, next time a campaign, you know where to find me. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty, Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork, and Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.